Good morning. Uh, welcome to the Cato Institute. Uh, I'm Roger Pilon. I'm the director of Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies, which is your host for the program today. This is our ninth annual Constitution Day conference. We're in for a day of uh, discussions about some of the most important cases that came down last term from the Supreme Court. And then in the final panel, we will look ahead to um, what's coming up uh, next term. And then we will conclude the program today with the ninth annual B. Kenneth Simon Lecture in Constitutional Thought, which will be given by Professor William Van Alstein, one of the nation's most distinguished professors now uh, serving at the uh, William and Mary Law School in Williamsburg. I'm going to begin my introductory remarks and welping, welcoming remarks today uh, with uh, this morning's post uh, and other papers where you may have seen that Cato has a large ad which begins uh, with a quote from President Obama. Uh, we will go through our federal budget page by page, line by line, eliminating those programs we don't need. Our response is, with all due respect, Mr. President, we're still waiting. I begin with this quote because it's emblematic of why it is that we hold these annual Constitution Day conferences. We live today not under the Constitution as much as under modern constitutional law, which is connected with the Constitution only occasionally. As those of you who have been to many Cato events know, uh, we came into being um, in 1977 as an institute, and the center uh, was constituted uh, by me in 1989 at a time when we had essentially two schools of thought with respect to the proper role of the court in adjudicating the Constitution namely the liberal school of thought, modern liberal, which uh, held that the Constitution was a living document that should be read uh, with respect to the abandonment of its centerpiece, the doctrine of enumerated powers, and with rights protected episodically, finding rights nowhere there to be found, even among our unenumerated rights, and ignoring rights that were plainly there, like property, contract, economic liberty, and such. Conservatives, by contrast, also bought into the demise of the doctrine of enumerated powers and called upon the court to secure only those rights that were expressly enumerated in the Constitution. And so we said both schools of thought have it wrong, and we called upon the court to restore Madison's constitution of limited government insofar as it could and that meant that we'd have to repair to Madison's idea that the Constitution establishes a government whose powers are, as he said in Federalist 45, few and defined. Well, no one today believes that the federal government's powers are few and defined. They are anything but, and that's why this ad appeared in the major newspapers of the country today. Now, obviously, the court cannot restore constitutional government by itself. It's going to take action from the political branches and ultimately from the people themselves. But in the meantime, we do look at the court to try to hold their feet to the fire as much as we can 
with respect to the Constitution itself as distinct from modern constitutional law, and that's why we hold these annual conferences and why we publish the annual Cato Supreme Court Review, a copy of which you should have picked up on your way in. And so without further ado, let me turn the program over to our moderator for this first panel, Ilya Shapiro, who is a senior fellow in constitutional studies at Cato and the editor-in-chief of the Cato Supreme Court Review. That's not all he does here. He is the in charge of our amicus briefs, which have grown ever more numerous over the years. He is a prolific writer and speaker, and so we're delighted that he joined us three and a half years ago to begin this um, stint as editor-in-chief of the review. He, uh, before joining Cato, was a special assistant advisor to the multinational uh, force in Iraq on rule of law issues, and he practiced international political, commercial, and antitrust litigation um, with um, Patton and Boggs and Cleary and Gottlieb in New York. Um, he has contributed to a variety of academic and popular uh, journals, the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy, LA Times, Legal Times, and so forth. He's appeared on all the major media event, uh, uh, forums of the day. Um, he has been an adjunct professor at George Washington University Law School. He clerked on the Fifth Circuit for uh, Judge uh, uh, E. Grady Jolly after graduating from the University of Chicago Law School. Before that, he did his B.A. at Princeton University and a master's degree in the London School of Economics. He speaks six languages. He will speak in English today. Please welcome Ilya Shapiro. Thank you, Roger. Uh, this is Cato's ninth annual Constitution Day conference, as Roger mentioned, when we also released the Supreme Court Review, the nation's uh, first in-depth review of the Supreme Court term just passed. We hold this conference every day on Constitution Day, about two and a half months uh, after the previous term concludes and two or three weeks before the new one starts, though this year we've moved it up a day uh, so it's not on a Friday and to uh, uh, accommodate Yom Kippur. We're proud of the speed with which we publish uh, this tome. Authors of articles about the last decided cases have uh, no more than a month to turn in their drafts and of its accessibility, at least insofar as the court's uh, opinions allow for that. Both the book and the conference are aimed uh, for everyone from lawyers to educated laymen and interested citizens. Uh, now, you have an overview of the day uh, in your conference packets. Uh, we, we run a tight ship. This, the panels start after this one. There will be an hour lunch, then a panel at 1, 2.15, a 15-minute break at 3.30, another panel at 3.45, and right into the B. Kenneth Simon lecture uh, at 5. I want to thank David Lampo and the publication staff, Linda Herzog, Victoria Cartwright, Rachel Goldman, and the conference staff, all of our interns and associates who are flitting about helping with this event, uh, and uh, most importantly, John Blanks. Uh, is John around? He's probably out herding cats outside, but he basically, neither the review nor the uh, event, nor any of our operations really would, would happen without somebody uh, there to make the trains run on time and, uh, and keep us on the straight and narrow. Uh, I reiterate our hope that this conference and the collection of essays that you have will deepen and promote the Madisonian first principles of our Constitution, giving renewed voice to the framers' fervent wish that we are a government of laws and not men. In so doing, we hope also 
to do justice to a rich legal tradition in which judges, politicians, and ordinary citizens alike understand the Constitution that it reflects and protects the natural rights to life, liberty, and property, including the right to earn a living, to quote the title of a new book by my friend and colleague Tim Sandifer. Is Tim in the audience somewhere? I think he's around. Uh, we're having a, a Hill briefing tomorrow for him and a book for him on Monday. Uh, and serves as a bul bulwark against the abuse of government power. In this uncertain time of individual mandates, endless stimulus, financial reform, and general overreach, it is more important than ever to remember our roots in the Enlightenment tradition. And so we hope you enjoy this ninth annual conference. We begin, as we begin the new review, with provocative views on the big First Amendment cases. The biggest of these is the most controversial case of the past few years, Citizens United. This decision, liberalizing the rules surrounding independent expenditures and express advocacy by corporations and unions, caused President Obama to upbraid the court at his State of the Union address, misstating the court's holding all the while, and led Congress to launch an effort to chill political speech in the name of leveling the playing field. Discussing this case will be longtime election law litigator James Bopp. Jim is general counsel at the James Madison Center for Free Speech at Terre Haute, uh, Indiana, and has a national constitutional law practice with the firm of Bopp, Colson, and Bostrom. He has successfully argued several cases before the Supreme Court, including Wisconsin Right to Life, Randall v. Sorrell, and the Republican Party of Minnesota versus White. He has numerous professional affiliations, including as co-chairman of the Election Law Subcommittee of the Federalist Society and special advisor to the ABA's Working Group on the First Amendment and Judicial Elections. Jim holds a BA from Indiana University and a JD from the University of Florida. We then move to Doe versus Reed, where the court addressed the question of whether disclosing the identities of petition signers violated the signers' rights to freedom of association, holding that states can require the public identification of those who seek issues placed on the petition, on the electoral ballot. Here to cover Doe is Steve Simpson, a senior attorney with the Institute for Justice who litigates free speech cases across the country in state and federal court. He is currently lead counsel in SpeechNow.org versus FEC, a challenge to the federal laws that prevent individuals from banding together to spend money on speech for and against candidates, and has been involved in a wide variety of other cases, including IJ's challenge to state bans on the direct shipment of wine, which resulted in victory before the Supreme Court in Granholm versus Held. Before joining IJ, Steve spent five years with the international firm of Shearman and Sterling. He graduated from New York Law School and then spent two years clerking for Judge Lenore Nesbitt on the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Florida. In this year's review, Steve wrote that Doe is, quote, more important for what it did not say than for what it did. So we can look forward to hearing about that. Rounding out this august group is Cato's own Roger Pallon who reviews Christian Legal Society versus Martinez, the case involving the associational right of student organizations at a public law school in light of that school's anti-discrimination policy. I guess Roger felt that he could do a more credible Richard Epstein, who wrote the article on CLS, than in Nadine Strawson, who wrote about the remaining First Amendment case involving crush videos and depictions of animal cruelty. In any event, Roger is our Vice President for Legal Affairs, holds the B. Kenneth Simon Chair in Constitutional Studies, and as he mentioned, is the founder and director of our Center for Constitutional Studies and publisher of the Cato Supreme Court Review. 
He is also an adjunct professor of government at Georgetown University through the Fund for American Studies. Before joining Cato, Roger held five posts in the Reagan administration, including at the Departments of State and Justice. He also taught philosophy and law and was a national fellow at Stanford's Hoover Institution. In 1989, the Bicentennial Commission presented him with the Benjamin Franklin Award for Excellence in Writing on the Constitution. With those introductions out of the way, let's hear about Citizens United from Jim Bopp. Thank you very much. Uh, Citizens United uh, is a very important First Amendment case. It is uh, where you should begin your study of campaign finance law uh, as has been developed by the United States Supreme Court in light uh, of the First Amendment's uh, ban on any laws. Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech, press, uh, assembly, and the right of the citizens to petition the government. it is important in its practical result, though not uh, as important uh, as uh, those who wish to reimpose limits on corporations would, would tell you, uh, but it is quite important from uh, a legal analysis standpoint. Uh, to understand its importance, I thought I should start at the beginning. Uh, Citizens United is simply the latest round of the age-old struggle between the citizens and government. People want to participate in the government, and they certainly want to be able to criticize them when it's warranted. The government, particularly incumbent politicians, want to use government to silence them. Now, when we had the divine right of kings, uh, if you criticized the government, you were tortured, imprisoned, murdered, and then condemned to hell. Uh, when we separated church and state, you were just tortured, imprisoned, and murdered. Now, uh, that is until the founding of our country, uh, because the uh, uh, American exceptionalism includes the, the uh, profound fact that our, our uh, government is organized as the citizens' self-government. And in order to provide for that self-government, Uh, the First Amendment protects the four indispensable democratic freedoms of speech, press, assembly, and petitioning uh, your government. This First Amendment was the the world's most radical uh, campaign finance reform, Uh, and it contemplated uh, no law. That is, the citizens, it it placed the law... uh, firmly behind the citizens' right to participate in, in the government uh, without the need or of uh, consulting the law to determine if you could do it and without the fear that the government would, uh, uh, would punish you for having uh, done so. Now, incumbent politicians, as they uh, are apt, uh, were still, after the founding of our country, quick to use the government to silence critics. Uh, in fact, in, 17, in the 1790s, the Federalist uh, uh, Party uh, passed the Alien and Sedition Act because of their fear of the, of the insurgent Republican Party led by Thomas Jefferson, uh, which uh, provide for criminal penalties uh, if you would hold the government in disrepute uh, through your uh, uh, statements or communications. 
Uh, well, in, in 1800, this, this effort was unsuccessful. Uh, as the Republicans swept the election, the Federalist Party dissolved, the Alien and Sedition Act was repealed, and those that were convicted of criminal offenses under it were pardoned by President uh, Thomas Jefferson. Uh, we still uh, saw uh, later on another Sedition Act passed in 1918 in response to the Communist menace, uh, and it did not last long on the books either. That takes us to the modern period, if you will. Uh, in 1905, the Tillman Act was passed, which prohibited corporate uh, contributions to candidates. Now, uh, Congressman Tillman was a notorious segregationist, and he uh, was concerned that, that uh, Republican-leading corporations were supporting his opponent uh, and that he might lose, so as incumbent politicians are apt, he sought to use the government to protect his reelection chances by prohibiting uh, this opposition to him, and he was successful in the passage of that act. In the late 1940s, uh, that act, uh, the Tillman Act, was extended to unions and was also extended to prohibit corporation and labor union expenditures uh, in addition to contributions which had been prohibited since 1905. And then in 1974, the uh, post-Watergate uh, amendments were passed, and these amendments uh, uh, imposed contribution limits, expenditure limits, and prohibitions on any communications that uh, were for the purpose of influencing an election. And, uh, of course, the corporate prohibition, labor union prohibition, uh, that originated in the Tillman Act prohibited expenditures, quote, in connection with a federal election. And, of course, all of these are quite broad, uh, involve uh, literally anything you might say about the government or politicians uh, or uh, governmental policies. And, uh, and uh, it was a full panoply of restrictions and prohibitions uh, that were imposed. Then in 1987, uh, the Supreme Court in Austin versus uh, Michigan Chamber of Commerce for the first time addressed the constitutionality of the corporate prohibition on expenditures and upheld them, uh, finding a brand new governmental interest in protecting our electoral system from uh, corporate uh, corruption. And here what they had in mind was not quid pro quo corruption, but that because corporations raise their money in the economic marketplace and then spend it in the political marketplace, uh, their view was uh, this participation, the spending of money in the political marketplace, would corrupt the political marketplace. You know, since no one has a uh, money tree other than the federal government, uh, and everyone gets, nearly everyone gets their money from the economic marketplace, you wonder... Uh, how far this interest could have ultimately gone uh, if Citizens United uh, had not intervened. Well, uh, the, the First Amendment uh, soon uh, raised, as incumbent politicians would, would I'm sure think, its ugly head, and, uh, and, and the courts proceeded to impose limits on these quite broad, quite draconian laws that were being used by Congress to attack citizens' communications about the government and about incumbent politicians, most important of which in this discussion is the recognition of the express advocacy test, first recognized in 1976 in Buckley versus Vallejo and then applied to the corporate prohibition on expenditures in 1986 
in the Massachusetts Citizens for Life case, and that is that uh, the words influence and connection with, uh, relative to, uh, all had to be limited uh, to uh, communications which, with which in expressed terms or in explicit words uh, advocated the election or defeat of a clearly identified candidate. This was viewed by the court to be the only formulation where the speaker would know what they are saying was regulated. Uh, there was no other test that they could find uh, where, uh, uh, where, uh, which would not be vague, would not subject speakers to concern about whether or not their discussions of issues or policies or lobbying the government uh, uh, would be then subject to uh, various restrictions. Uh, and, and it was also the formulation that, that made the, this campaign finance law directly applicable to campaigns. Uh, not, uh, they felt, quite correctly, that these laws were not to regulate speech in our democracy, uh, but found its uh, governmental power in the power of the government to regulate campaigns for federal office. So the express advocacy test uh, was uh, imposed, and of course politicians, again, were quite unhappy because they were then subject to issue ads, that is, people discussing what they are doing to us and for us in office and uh, whether people liked uh, what they were doing to us and for us in office. And uh, as I've explained, uh, uh, government, uh, the government and politicians uh, specifically have always sought to use government to limit the right of citizens to talk about them. And uh, so, so now the courts are, quote, opening the floodgates, end of quote, to these issue ads. Well, uh, the response in Congress was McCain-Feingold, adopted in 2002, uh, upheld by the U.S. Supreme Court in 2003 in McConnell versus FEC, when essentially uh, Sandra Day O'Connor switched sides from a critic of campaign finance reform. In fact, she dissented in Austin, which was the case that established the constitutionality of corporate prohibitions, and uh, uh, where she switched sides in a five-to-four decision which upheld the essential features of McCain-Feingold, including the, the response that McCain-Feingold had to the electionary, to, I'm sorry, to the express advocacy doctrine. And that was to create a new type of communication called an electionary communication, uh, which was defined as a broadcast ad, so they at least let, let print uh, telemarketing uh, alone for, for the while, uh, broadcast ad that would be broadcast within 60 days of a general election, 30 days of a primary, and was broadcast to the constituents of the politician mentioned. All the ad had to do was to name a uh, politician that was on the ballot uh, before this election, and uh, it was covered. And, of course, the corporations were prohibited from doing this, and, the, uh, uh, and that prohibition meant... Uh, that if you mention the name of a candidate, you committed a federal crime for which there was jail time. Now, uh, of course, the uphold in the upholding of this was on its face, and everyone thought that this was the end of the story except for me. Uh, and, and I brought, uh, in 2004, Wisconsin Right to Life, which was an as-applied challenge to this very broad electionary communication prohibition. And that as-applied challenge said that grassroots lobbying 
was uh, so uh, different than electioneering that uh, you should be able to do that, that this uh, broad uh, law could not be constitutionally applied to it. Well, it took two uh, trips to the U.S. Supreme Court for the court uh, to ultimately hold that not only could you do uh, as applied challenges, but that uh, this a very broad electioneering communication provision uh, had to be uh, uh, limited to only communications in which there was actually an appeal to vote for a candidate. Well, the FEC pursued, proceeded to uh, gut that provision by adoption of regulations that converted a, a, re a relatively simple one-part test into a two-part 11-factor uh, uh, balancing test, and, and, and that test uh, became un unworkable. Uh, then, then comes Citizens United. Uh, Citizens United involved uh, two things. One, uh, whether Hillary the movie could be prohibited. In other words, does the, uh, p did it have an appeal to vote so it could be prohibited? Oh, and and uh, uh, could you apply the disclaimer and reports to ads which everyone agreed did not have an appeal to vote? And, of course, our argument was that any regulation had to be directly applicable to elections and it had to have the appeal to vote. Well, like so many cases, this case and our Law Review article discusses the various twists and turns in this case and how it went from a disclosure case to ultimately repealing many of the fundamental legal theories that support campaign finance reform. Uh, there, are, there are, I think, two reasons why uh, this occurred. First is, as I've mentioned, the FEC made the appeal to vote test unworkable, and Wisconsin Right to Life was an attempt to salvage McConnell. It was a narrow, limited ruling that upheld McConnell, and, uh, uh, but, but tried to make it consistent with the First Amendment. Uh, the second was the dramatic answer in oral argument by the solicitor uh, 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 revealing to the public and the world what the FEC has long held, that you can, that they felt that they had the power under federal election law to ban a book 600 pages long that had one sentence that said, uh, elect Joe Blow. Uh, the result was rehearing on whether or not McConnell and Austin ought to be overruled, and then a second argument and a decision ultimately by the court that it shall be overruled. Now, in the process of Wisconsin and McConnell, uh, the four uh, key interests that have been recognized by the court to uphold campaign finance laws have been seriously undermined. The first interest in circumvention recognized in McConnell and in Shrink uh, has been vitiated by Wisconsin Right to Life's, quote, enough is enough. Two, the corporate uh, corruption interest recognized in Austin and reaffirmed in McConnell, was rejected in Citizens United. Three, the quid pro quo corruption interest, which has been used to uphold contribution limits, was limited uh, in Citizens United only to quid pro quo and not to granting access that the Supreme Court uh, seemed to be doing in McConnell. And finally, the disclosure interest uh, was reaffirmed, albeit, albeit very narrowly. A one-page, one-time report about one expenditure uh, was upheld by the court. Thus, the four-legged uh, stool upon which campaign finance rested 
uh, before uh, Citizens United and Wisconsin Right to Life, is now down to one and a half legs, and uh, hopefully within a relatively short period of time, it will be on the floor. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's always interesting to appear to discuss uh, a case when the guy who litigated the case is sitting right to your left. Uh, I suspect the reason I'm here is, uh, is due to Cato's serious commitment to diversity. If, uh, if they had the guy who litigated the campaign finance cases uh, only speak about them, Jim Bopp would be the only one who ever appeared on these <laughs> panels. So I thank uh, Cato, whatever the reason for having me. It's, uh, it's great to be here to talk about uh, campaign finance in a very exciting time for campaign finance. That is, if you agree with uh, uh, my side of, uh, of the debate and, and Jim's as well, the Supreme Court is doing some great things. Uh, it's, there's an irony in discussing the Doe v. Reed case alongside uh, Citizens United because it's a good example of the fact that uh, although the Supreme Court can typically be relied upon to uh, pull some interesting decisions out of its sleeve, they often don't come in the packages that you think they will. When I first heard about Citizens United, I think I and many of the other folks who litigate in this area thought it was going to be yet another case, very much like Wisconsin Right to Life, where the Supreme Court might create some exceptions, kind of dance around the law, maybe hold that, you know, a film isn't covered by these laws, but, uh, you know, we're, we're going to continue this process of, of uh, tinkering around the laws. Obviously, it didn't uh, turn out that that way. When I first heard about the issue at the, at the root of Doe, it was in connection with Proposition 8 in California, where many of you are probably aware uh, there were some serious, uh, there was serious actual, not just allegations, but actual evidence of harassment, using government disclosure laws to harass people who want to speak out about uh, ballot initiatives. I thought, God, this is a, now this is a controversial case. I mean, it involves one of the most controversial issues that we have today in gay marriage. There, were actual, there was actual evidence of, uh, of harassment. And of course, when the decision came down, it had followed Citizens United by a few months. Uh, I think uh, me and many other people were thinking, well, the Supreme Court is prepared to allow corporations to spend as much money as they want on their own speech, surely it's going to jump to the aid of these people who've being, uh, who are being uh, harassed through the use of government disclosure laws. Alas, it didn't turn out that way. Um, the, uh, uh, the, the Supreme Court in Doe, I think, issued a very narrow ruling. It is uh, uh, um, it, it's a, it's a ruling that, uh, while is a very important ruling, uh, and it's certainly one that I don't agree with, it is at least a uh, predictable. It was, it was much narrower than many people thought the court would uh, go, especially in light of the, of the Citizens United decision. Now, that's not to say that it's not important. It's not to say that I agree with the ruling. I disagree with it, and I'll, I'll talk a bit about why that is. But it is to say, as Ilya pointed out, uh, which I say in my article, I think the decision is less important for what it actually did hold than for what it did not hold. What the court did do in Doe was to say that the states have the authority to require the public disclosure of, uh, of petition signatures, the identities of the people who sign petitions, and their addresses uh, to get, a, get an issue on the ballot. That's, that's understandable to some degree in the sense that uh, even I, who is a, uh, a staunch 
advocate of individual rights and smaller government, I even recognize that if we're going to have elections, we actually have to have laws that regulate the process of elections, to make them fair, to ensure that there's no fraud in the election process. I think most people agree with that. That makes good sense. The one question then becomes in that area, uh, how far can the government go? When is it issuing a, uh, a legitimate election process law, and when does, it, when does it delve into an area of free speech that can, can chill speech? As I said, I disagree with what the court in Doe did, but I recognize that it at least has the authority, the, the government has the authority to regulate in this area. And I think what the court was doing was saying, look, we have to give some discretion to the states to decide how to uh, characterize their, their laws. What the court did not do is go beyond that interest in ensuring against fraud, mistake, and managing the, uh, the process of elections. And that was entirely appropriate, uh, in my view. And, uh, and speaking as somebody who litigates in this area against disclosure laws that chill speech, I'm, I'm very happy that the court actually did that. Now, that's an important distinction to draw uh, because it has an impact not only on the, the plaintiffs, obviously, in Doe, but more broadly, on uh, disclosure laws across the country in all of the states that, uh, that allow uh, uh, citizens to vote on laws via the ballot issue process. To understand why that is, let me, let me speak a little bit about the broader context and the types of laws that we have in, these in this area. Now, I think broadly speaking, you can say that there are sort of two types of disclosure laws that apply in the ballot initiative context. The first is the one that was at issue in Doe. That is a law that, uh, that regulates the process of elections and the intent of which, or at least the putative intent of which, is to prevent fraud in the election process. That is, at least as the Supreme Court interpreted the law in Doe, that's what we were dealing with in Doe. One can take an issue with that interpretation. I do. I know Jim and his uh, clients did. I don't really think the law could properly be interpreted to be serving the, the state's purpose in preventing fraud. but. For purposes of the case, that's how the court interpreted it. So we take the court at its word, and now we look at how that, uh, the, that decision will play out in the future. Now, the, uh, the, the second type of law that uh, exists in this issue is what I would call a broader, more general disclosure law. That's a law that requires anybody who spends money uh, advocating the, 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 the election or defeat of a ballot issue or gives money to somebody else to do precisely that now has to comply with a raft of disclosure laws, turn over their identity to the state, uh, indicate how much they've spent on it, indicate sometimes, uh, well, always their address and oftentimes um, even their employer simply to be able to speak out for or against a ballot issue. That's a much broader law it has much graver implications, at least in the law, as a, as a matter of law, for rights to privacy, rights to free speech, and rights to association. That's not to say that the impact on the individuals is any less. I think the impact on the individuals at issue in Doe was quite, uh, was quite severe. It is to say, though, that the, the impact on the law, if we accept this other type of disclosure law, this broader disclosure law, then we, we might legitimately ask the question, what is left of privacy? After all, if the point of these laws, as the government argued in, in, uh, in, uh, in the Doe case, and as the states who have these broader uh, disclosure laws have argued, if the point is to educate the public, the idea is uh, if the public knows who's spending money to speak, really it comes down to who is speaking out, who, uh, who is uh, advocating one side or another in a ballot issue, 
fight. If the public knows that, they'll be educated. They'll know more because they'll know more about the interests. They'll know about whoever, who else is uh, lining up on each side of the debate. If we accept that argument, I certainly don't see how, we, how there is anything left to privacy at all. After all, anytime somebody wants to violate another person's privacy, what they are trying to do is, in effect, educate them themselves about that person's private affairs. I mean, what's left over? If you say the state has an interest in disclosing your personal information, putting it on the, on the Internet, because other people think it will, it will educate the public, what's left that won't be disclosed? That's a very significant issue. It's an issue that the court didn't address. Thankfully, it didn't address that. That leaves open the field to argue this later on. And, and the, part of the reason that I say... Uh, the decision is more important for what it didn't do is because, in my view, if you read the Doe decision, uh, you, you, you come away with the feeling that the court was scrupulously avoiding saying anything about this informational interest, this idea that we can disclose people's public, uh, private information um, to educate the public. I think that the justices avoided that entire debate and issue on purpose. That's not just the, uh, the majority's decision. Uh, but all of the concurring justices and, and uh, well, Justice Thomas in dissent attacked the entire decision. But even the concurring justices didn't really rely on this general idea that the government can compel you to disclose your private information when you, when you wish to speak out. Uh, it certainly left that issue for the future. Um, and I think, uh, at least I, I hope, that the court will, uh, will approach that with an entirely different uh, take on the issue than it did in Doe. Now, Justice Alito... Uh, in concurrence, he concurred with the majority. He was on board with the idea that disclosure is appropriate to prevent fraud in the election process. He was not on board with the idea that we can go beyond that and require people to disclose their personal information because it might educate the public. Indeed, Justice Alito went as far as to say that the very idea that the states would have this power is, quote, breathtaking in its implications. As Justice Alito pointed out, if we can require people to disclose their, uh, their funding sources, to disclose the individuals who are giving the money, simply to speak out, all they're doing here is speaking, then what can the government not require disclosure for? Indeed, if the idea here is to provide information to the public, why are we playing games with your address and your employer? That doesn't really tell anybody what you think. What we really need to be doing is finding out if you're a member of the NRA, if you're a Republican, if you're a Democrat, what religion you are, what, sexual in, or, what your sexual orientation is, what is your ethnicity, where really in town do you live? Do you live on this side of the tracks or that side of the tracks? What's your educational background? That, that's really going to tell us something about what people think. So if we are really serious about this idea of requiring people to disclose their personal information, even their addresses and their identities, for the sake of educating people who apparently are not educating themselves about the issues in, on, on a ballot issue, let's just cut right to the chase and really get to some media information. That's essentially what Justice Alito was saying. Now, this is breathtaking, or at least I hope it is. It certainly is to me. And as Justice Alito uh, pointed out, it would really disrupt or overturn not only decades of First Amendment jurisprudence, but a tradition of privacy, anonymous speech, and anonymous association, it goes all the way back to the founding era. I mean, the Federalist Papers, after all, they were speaking anonymously. There are many, many, many other uh, examples 
of anonymous speech and privacy in one's association when one is agitating for a political cause. This makes sense, both from a doctrinal standpoint and from a practical standpoint. Typically, people who are agitating for political change are going against the grain. There's an incentive for those who are opposed to them, oftentimes the majority or factions, to try to ferret them out so they can criticize them and intimidate them in public, try to prevent them from speaking, right? That actually happened with the NAACP during the 1960s. Whatever you think about the gay marriage issue, I'm actually in favor of gay marriage, but I'm also in favor of people speaking out and maintaining their privacy and not being intimidated when they do. Thankfully, the Supreme Court, as it were, didn't go there, and I think many of the justices purposely avoided that issue, either because they, they have serious concerns about it, but in any event, narrowed the issue in Doe strictly to the state's interest in uh, maintaining the integrity of the elections and preventing fraud. So in a sense, we live to fight another day if you're, if you're on my side, but in any event, to determine really what will play out and how this issue will play out in the future, we're going to have to wait for a, uh, a future case. Now, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't quickly mention what I think the court should have done in Doe. I agree ultimately with Jim Bopp's position, but I think uh, uh, one can uh, do uh, certainly worse than relying on Justice Thomas. Uh, Justice Thomas dissented in the case, and he really had a very common sense take on it, one that I think was absolutely right, and I always admire Justice Thomas for cutting right to the chase, uh, pushing aside all of the nonsense. His basic point was this. Look, First of all, there are a lot of people here who want these signatures, not because they're going to go home and scour through the rolls and compare them to voter registration and say, aha, this person's not actually you know, a registered voter, so we need to strike them off the list. No, of course not. We knew from Proposition 8 in California that a lot of the reason for getting these signatures was precisely to harass these people. The state digitizes signatures already. It can put them in a computer database, compare them to the voter registration rolls, voila, Problem solved. It's really not that complicated. We live in an age of technology. If the state wants to check uh, against fraud, it can do so. Therefore, the state can't go beyond, even in the exercise of its, uh, of its uh, authority to maintain the integrity of elections and trench on people's privacy. Once again, Justice Thomas got it exactly right. Uh, Justice Alito also hit the nail on the head in criticizing uh, the information interest. So I uh, at least hope that in the future the court will do the right thing and protect people's privacy, their right of association, and free speech. Thanks very much. I'm back. Um, unlike with Jim and to a lesser extent uh, Steve, I've got the unpleasant task of discussing a case uh, in which five justices got it very wrong. Uh, in doing so, I'm going to draw upon Professor Richard Epstein's excellent article of this case in the Cato Supreme Court Review that you all have. Um, the case is, as Ilya said, is Christian Legal Society v. Martinez, Martinez being the dean at the time of the Hastings Law School in San Francisco. The facts of the case are relatively simple. Hastings is a large public law school uh, with some 1,300 students. CLS is a tiny group, fewer than a dozen Christian law students. 
which requires that its members and officers be committed to certain religious principles, including abstinence from premarital sex and homosexuality. Hastings has some 60 um, registered student organizations, ranging from the Hastings Democratic Caucus, the Hastings Republicans, the Jewish Law Students Association, the Muslim Law Students, and so on, all of which are eligible for such benefits as use of Hastings' name and logo, the use of bulletin boards and email systems, space for activities, and the like. But when CLS applied to be a registered student organization, its application was denied on the ground that it didn't satisfy the school's non-discrimination policy, which bars discrimination on grounds, among others, of sexual orientation. There followed a series of letters among the lawyers and then this suit by CLS claiming that Hastings had violated the students' First Amendment free exercise and speech rights. The district court found for Hastings, holding that the school's policy was neutral and reasonable because it wasn't directed solely toward religious groups. And at this stage, Hastings admitted that its non-discrimination policy, and I quote, permits political, social, and cultural student organizations to select officers and members who are dedicated to a particular set of beliefs and ideals, even if it prohibited discrimination on certain specified grounds. But a funny thing happened on appeal. The Ninth Circuit panel upheld the district court decision in an opinion running all of two sentences. In doing so, however, the court found that the parties had stipulated that Hastings had imposed a policy under which, and again I quote, all groups must accept all comers as voting members, even if those individuals disagree with the mission of the group. The condition of recognition, recognition the court concluded, are therefore viewpoint neutral and reasonable. Before I continue, just fasten for a moment on that all comers policy. It means that Democratic student caucuses must accept Republican students as members and officers, and conversely, the Jewish student group must accept Muslim students as members and officers, and conversely, CLS must accept homosexuals, and so on down the line. It's anti-discrimination on steroids. And that brings us, at least preliminarily, to the first principles of the matter, which are modern anti-discrimination law to a significant extent has abandoned. In a free society, freedom of association means that private individuals and groups are free to associate or to refuse to associate on any ground, good or bad, or no ground at all. By contrast, public institutions, which belong to all of us, may not discriminate except on grounds that are narrowly tailored to their functions. Hold that basic principle for now. We'll refine it in just a moment. Well, Hastings' all-comers policy, which made its first official appearance in this appellate opinion, turns those principles on their head. CLS, a private group, is exercising its right to organize itself on grounds that it thinks best, in the course of which it's discriminating against those who don't subscribe to its beliefs. By contrast, Hastings, a public institution that may not discriminate except in relevant ways, is discriminating against CLS, which is simply exercising its First Amendment, free exercise speech, and associational rights. 
At the Supreme Court, however, that outcome was fine with Justice Ginsburg and the court's other liberals who saw the policy as promoting tolerance and cooperation. And it was fine with Justice Kennedy, too, who argued separately that, quote, a vibrant dialogue is not possible if students wall themselves off from opposing points of view. Fine sentiments, to be sure, but what's the principle of the matter? For Justice Alito, writing in dissent for himself and the court's conservatives, it was that there shall be, quote, no freedom of expression that offends prevailing standards of political correctness in our country's institutions of higher learning. And his dissent demonstrates that in spades, not least by indulging the scrutiny that courts are charged to exercise, not the deference that Justice Ginsburg showered on the government. So let's delve a little more deeply into the decision to see where the majority went wrong. The most confusing question in the case concerned which policy applied, the narrower anti-discrimination policy that was discussed at the district court level, which allowed groups some discrimination, or the broader all-comers policy, which was nowhere written but was first advanced as an extemporaneous gloss on the official non-discrimination policy. As Professor Epstein writes, the impressive weight that Justice Ginsburg attaches to the stipulation is questionable in light of the surrounding circumstances, which he lays out. Among those circumstances, the stipulation clashes with the position Hastings took in answer to the complaint. But even if the all-comers policy were to have been the operative policy, both it and the narrower non-discrimination policy raised serious questions of principle which the majority simply glossed over. In a nutshell, if the government cannot impose its policy on CLS directly, and it cannot, then neither can it do that same thing indirectly by withholding benefits otherwise available unless CLS abides by the government's policy. We have here, in short, the doctrine of unconstitutional conditions, which stated generally says that even if a state has absolute discretion to grant or deny any individual a privilege or benefit, it cannot grant the privilege subject to conditions that improperly coerce, pressure, or induce the waiver of that person's constitutional rights. Thus, while a state can impose some conditions on access to public benefits, it couldn't, for example, condition the use of public roads on an individual's abandoning the right to access federal courts. Or it couldn't tell the local Catholic Church that police and fire protection will be available only if women are admitted to the priesthood. Before developing the unconstitutional conditions doctrine further, however, let's first look at what it is that government can and cannot do by way of direct regulation of association. Traditionally, the main intrusion on freedom of association concerned common carriers who enjoyed monopoly power and therefore had to take all comers who met basic neutral conditions such as having paid the fare, acceptable deportment, and so forth. Our modern anti-discrimination law, however, 
has extended that intrusion to public accommodations, of course. And in doing so, unfortunately, it has blurred the lines, monopolies accepted, between private and public. Thus today, in selecting members and leaders, the Boy Scouts may discriminate against homosexuals, whereas the JCs may not discriminate against women. Rather than using private and public to categorize associations, the court today distinguishes economic associations like businesses and even the JCs, expressive associations like the Boy Scouts, and intimate associations like families and religious associations which receive the greatest freedom of association. Given the court's tripartite distinction, CLS is an easy case. The government could not directly impose an anti-discrimination policy on CLS, much less an all-comers policy. How then could it do so indirectly? Justice Ginsburg seems to think that the answer lies in the mode of state involvement, Epstein argues. Thus, she grants that in moving from government as regulator to government as owner, Hastings, as owner of the law school, could not impose any restrictions on what CLS can do off campus with its own resources. But on campus, she believes, it has to accept reasonable conditions in order to be eligible for privileges, the denial of which should not be regarded as compulsion. Thus, she implicitly invokes the long discredited rights-privileges distinction about which Professor William Van Alstein, who will conclude our conference today, wrote long ago that, quote, if this view were uniformly applied, the devastating effect it would have on any constitutional claims within the public sector can be readily perceived. Thus, we turn to that public sector and to public forum doctrine. In the case of open public forums, such as streets and parks, an all-comers policy applies, but against the government, not the private supplicant seeking to use the facility. Time, place, and manner restrictions can be applied, of course, provided they're neutral in form and effect. The state, in effect, has to act as a common carrier, as in the case of Hurley v. Irish-American gay, lesbian, and bisexual group, where the court held that the South Boston Allied War Veterans Council, a private group, did not have to admit into its St. Patrick's Day parade the gay, lesbian, and bisexual group, which sought to march as a separate contingent under its own banner as part of the council's larger St. Patrick's Day celebration. The state has to act as the common carrier. It can't force the veterans to project messages with which they disagree. Hastings, however, is a limited public forum. As such, it need not itself be bound by an all-comers policy because it needs to have discretion to run its affairs to serve its function. Thus, it has to be able to discriminate in who it admits to its facilities, who it admits as students and faculty, and so forth. But it can't be run exactly like a private entity either because it is, after all, a public institution. Thus, it cannot hire only Catholic professors as a private Catholic law school might wish to do. Determining just what may and may not be done in limited public forums 
is not always a simple matter, of course. But over the years, the court has made those determinations in a number of church-state cases, such as Widmar v. Vincent, Lamb's Chapel v. Center Mauritius Union Free School District, and Rosenberger v. Rector of Visitors of the University of Virginia. Rosenberger is instructive in this connection. There, the court held that the University of Virginia was not obligated to fund any student publications, but it couldn't refuse to cover the printing costs of an explicitly Christian publication if it were prepared to fund printing costs for other campus publications dealing with similar religious and social issues. To the extent that the university was not engaged in its distinctive academic mission, it had to treat all groups in the same fashion without discrimination. Well, here the issues were similar, but Justice Ginsburg took the view that CLS, in seeking what she saw as a state subsidy, faces only indirect pressure to modify its membership policies. CLS may exclude any person for any reason, she wrote, if it forgoes the benefits of re official recognition. Well, right there is the unconstitutional conditions problem. CLS can partake of benefits otherwise available to other groups, Ginsburg contends, but only if it surrenders its free exercise and speech rights, only if it ceases being the group that it is. That turns the matter upside down. As a public institution, Hastings, not CLS, is the common carrier that must accept all comers subject to the constraints of a limited public forum. Ginsburg analysis gets that exactly backwards. Nor does her concern about CLS receiving a public subsidy carry weight. As Epstein notes, that concern ignores the larger context. True, registered student organizations are eligible for small subsidies, but those subsidies come from mandatory student activity fees. Thus, as Epstein writes, quote, viewed in context, the subsidies run the other way. CLS members must put money into a pot from which they are not allowed to withdraw cash. They are systematic net losers from a policy that requires them to subsidize all other groups. Only if we turn a blind eye to the source of the money does the subsidy argument make sense. That's not what First Amendment law is about, he concludes. Finally, as with so many constitutional decisions over the past century, here again, we have a case that was decided not on legal, but on policy grounds. Hastings prevails because its policy, the majority said, promotes tolerance and cooperation. The irony, of course, is that it results in just the opposite. As Epstein writes, forced association in important extracurricular activities done in a limited public forum turns toleration into feigned agreement and turns cooperation into forced association. And so I conclude on a point with which I began. We recognize the right of private individuals to freely associate and hence to discriminate, or at least we should, because we respect private choices, not all of which we may agree with, but all of which are the mark of a free society. But our modern anti-discrimination law and policy, an obsession today in our colleges and universities, is seriously eroding those principles as this decision fully demonstrates. Because it's difficult to square with any decisions the court has reached in, in, this, area, uh, in, in this area, it remains to be seen 
where we go from here. Thank you. Well, thanks very much to all our panelists. Uh, we'll now move to some Q&A. Uh, I will remind you all that we have three rules for Q&A here at Cato. First of all, wait for the microphone. It's going to be brought around. Uh, identify yourself and inst any institutional affili affiliation, if any. Uh, and uh, actually ask a question rather than making a comment or a speech. Uh, let's start over there. Steve Hursting, one of our authors from last year. Thank you. Steve Hursting, Center for Competitive Politics. And to Jim and Steve, um, if you look at Citizens United and Doe, um, a casual observation looks like genuine issue advocacy can be must be disclosed now. Um, now, Steve, you mentioned that the court didn't really necessarily go there. But, Jim, I know you and your colleague, Rich Colson, have written about the disclosure aspects of genuine issue advocacy in light of Citizens United. And my question is, do you guys think the court has done anything that puts itself in concrete with regard to compelled disclosure for genuine issue advocacy? Uh, no, I, I don't. Uh, I don't think that they are signal, signaling uh, that they're prepared to, to uh, unloose, unleash the, the floodgates of disclosure uh, on um, issue advocacy. The, what we were argu well, what, what was argued uh, it was that um, the disclosure requirements had to be limited to Wisconsin right to life's appeal to vote test. And that if, if you can't prohibit it, you also can't disclose it and uh, or provide any regulation of, the, of that nature on it. The, uh, what uh, Justice Kennedy said, and, and you know, in reading the Citizens United opinion, you, you get the impression that once they got to the issue of disclosure, they were like exhausted. Oh, you know, I don't I can't just write. You know, I can't write another word. You know, uh, mentally and uh, uh, in all other ways, physically exhausted. And so they they dealt with it very in a very summary fashion. Just said to that argument, well, uh, disclosure can you know cannot be uh, is not constitutionally limited only to the functional equivalent of a pr express advocacy, which was the McConnell phrase. And um, and uh, and therefore they uh, and they said that the 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 disclosure here the 30 day 60 day uh, uh, you know uh, was uh, in relationship to an election so they they said that we are talking about uh, an election here uh, when we run these ads so uh, so does that mean that Wisconsin right to life you know. Uh, uh, grassroots lobbying could be disclosed? I don't think so. Uh, I think the court would say those have nothing to do with an election at all, uh, even tangentially, and therefore uh, campaign finance doesn't apply to it. Are we on? Okay, sorry. Um, yeah, I, I agree with Jim for the most part, uh, and uh, I don't think that this, uh, that, that either Doe or Citizens United necessarily means issue advocacy uh, disclosure or that uh, we'll see that down the pike. It does raise a number of interesting questions going forward. Both these cases do. As I said in my remarks, I think Doe certainly does. Uh, Citizens United raises a number of questions. But in the disclosure context, uh, one question that we're going to end up litigating at some point, we being, you know, people who litigate these things, uh, 
uh, is whether or not the rationale for disclosure in Citizens United will extend into the ballot issue context. And, Steve, I think your question to some extent touches on that, uh, which, which I would perhaps reformulate as what is express advocacy versus issue advocacy in the ballot issue context? When one is speaking about a ballot issue, isn't one engaged necessarily in issue advocacy? How do we call it express advocacy? I mean, in, uh, in one sort of superficial way, one can, one can draw a distinction between saying vote for or vote against a ballot issue, and therefore that's express advocacy. But that kind of gets the whole reason that we have that distinction uh, exactly backwards. The whole reason that Buckley uh, created that distinction was to cabin the federal campaign finance laws so that they didn't affect people discussing issues. So, I mean, that's an open question. It's a hard one to decide. It will certainly uh, give me and my colleagues, uh, including Steve, headaches in the future when we litigate these issues. I don't really know what more to say about that other than other than we will continue to fight against the ever uh, uh, incremental expansion of, of disclosure laws. Right here. Thanks. I'm Phil Harvey. Uh, can someone say a little something about U.S. v. Stevens, the dogfighting video case, which I take it was meant to be on the agenda, and seems to me particularly important in light of the courts uh, accepting the violent video game case from, uh, from California uh, for the current session? I'll just make one quick comment, uh, Phil, and that is that this was another case that um, appealed to popular sentiments, and no one can support uh, crush videos in substance, but the effect would have been to carve out another exception to the First Amendment. And uh, this, um, we already have the uh, child pornography exception to the First Amendment, and the fear was, uh, on the part of the court, uh, that uh, once we go down this road any further, um, there will just be ever more requests for exceptions to the First Amendment. And we see this regularly, of course. And actually, uh, today, Cato is filing, or may have already filed, I'll have to check with counsel, uh, an amicus brief in the Schwarzenegger versus EMA violent video game case, basically saying that uh, the the self-regulatory system that's already in place um, better in video games than in any other type of entertainment medium is already doing what uh, the the goal of the uh, state statute is uh, is supposed to be doing. Uh, for example, a few years ago, this voluntary organization, and by the way, all video games uh, have to be rated in effect because all the major video game players uh, only accept games that uh, that have been rated. Um, a few years ago, in the uh, the um, uh, what's it called, uh, San Andreas. Um, I'm blanking on the, uh, the, the driving game, uh, Grand Theft Auto, uh, San Andreas game. There was apparently some, some content that if you were successful in some certain way, you got to some content that a lot of people uh, objected to. Uh, and this private organization uh, basically levied a, a fine. It was all voluntary uh, um, you know, and, and uh, took care of it while Congress was debating whether we should have a law and, and all these sorts of things. So... Um, you know, anyway, that's our take. We kind of go through the, the history of regulation of everything from penny dreadfuls and uh, radio and, you know, kind of uh, seducing the innocent, uh, this big study in the 50s about comic books and so forth, to talk about how uh, whatever uh, the problem is, uh, the government regulation of it isn't the solution. Back there. 
Harvey Silberglate, one of our panelists for the next panel after lunch. And I'm speaking now in my uh, capacity as the board chairman of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education with a question, a uh, nervous question to Roger. Uh, and that's uh, whether or not the uh, Hastings uh, uh, decision abodes ill in the event we uh, ever get a test case before the Supreme Court challenging the constitutionality of those ubiquitous speech codes that penalize, quote, harassing speech, close quote. Uh, is this a direction the court's going in that perhaps means we should wait a while before bringing such a uh, challenge? Well, I, I, it's hard to answer that question, um, Harvey, because as I said at the end, this decision is inconsistent with Rosenberger and several other cases. And so um, the issue is going to have to be revisited, it seems to me, at some point in time. This novel all-comers policy, which Hastings imposes upon CLS and every other student group, um, has the potential to allow hostile takeovers of student groups on one hand and the other and on the other hand cannot be applied to Hastings itself because if it were Hastings could not discriminate in its hiring of faculty admission of students and so much else that it does um, and so um, I think we're going to see a challenge uh, fairly soon um, that will bring this this opinion into uh, ill repute. Um, and, and, and maybe it will come from the college speech code area because, as you know, um, those things are ubiquitous on the campuses today. We have um, kangaroo courts set up uh, for students who are alleged to have offended somebody else in their speech or spoken outside of the designated free speech zone the um, you know tiny area where you can speak freely on a campus. I mean, this is people who aren't familiar with college campuses today should really go visit them. Uh, we send our children off to college thinking that oh boy, they're going to learn so much in this climate of free exercise, the life of the mind. Nothing could be further from the truth on so many college campuses, and so it could be, Harvey, that one such case as this will invite the court to revisit this decision, and maybe uh, Justice Kennedy will think better of his uh, joining the liberals on this one uh, if the facts are a little uh, better in the upcoming case. Bob Levy right there. Do all the panelists for the next panel want to speak now? <laughs> Uh, in the aftermath of uh, Citizens United, there have been legislative proposals to rein in the <clears throat> independent expenditures by corporations, uh, three in particular, uh, restrictions on corporations with foreign ownership, the requirement that corporations uh, obtain consent uh, by their uh, shareholders, and restrictions on corporations that have government contracts. I wonder if uh, Steve or Jim would like to comment on uh, their view of the constitutionality of those restrictions? Uh, well, it, 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 you would think that those who wrote the Disclose Act uh, think that they won the Citizens United case, not lost it. And uh, 
uh, and so that's what I think about the constitutionality of it. Uh, I think each of the essential elements are unconstitutional. Uh, uh, first, foreign uh, companies uh, and nat foreign nationals are already prohibited by three separate federal statutes from participating in our elections. Of course, this takes it much further because it's not uh, restrict. It's not the prohibition is not just applied to uh, uh, companies with a majority uh, ownership of uh, by foreign nationals, but get, but it goes down to twenty percent, uh, and so it's a radical uh, expansion of the applicability of the prohibition that uh, would really uh, potentially uh, capture. Uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of, of U.S. corporations that currently, uh, uh, and prior to Citizens United, uh, uh, could speak. Uh, secondly, the disclosure, uh, they, have, they have taken the uh, Supreme Court's upholding of a one-page, one-time report on a single uh, communication, which is the uh, Election Communication Report that is filed, uh, they've taken that and 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 then then, then would then uh, impose, you know, uh, comprehensive disclosure that goes way beyond um, what I any current law prov provides, and uh, uh, you know one of the fatal flaws. And uh, I invite you to read the recent uh, uh, Colorado Supreme Court case uh, on their campaign finance law, which happens to be in their constitution. The, uh, uh, they said that if, if uh, labor unions are uh, not treated similarly to corporations, then you have an unconstitutional uh, violation of, of equal protection. And, and, of course, what is noteworthy about the Disclose Act is that even though the Citizens United decision applied equally to corporations and labor unions, freeing both of them to do express advocacy communications and electionary communications. The uh, Disclose Act, in all of its relevant provisions, uh, applies only to uh, corporations and not to labor unions. So the international such-and-so union uh, is not affected at all uh, uh, in doing uh, expenditures in, in U.S. elections while uh, corporations with 20% uh, of their uh, shareholders, uh, U.S. corporations with 20% of their shareholders being foreign nationals would be prohibited. Uh, and that is most dramatically demonstrated by the other provision you mentioned, which is the, the doing business with. Uh, there's a lot of problems with that uh, that, uh, that renders it unconstitutional, but the most obvious one is, the, uh, is that it doesn't apply to unions. Uh, I mean, uh, there are two sets of unions that have an equal interest uh, with corporations that are doing business with, uh, with the government. Uh, one is, of course, the union that uh, is the union of the corporation doing business. I mean, they, uh, they have an interest in, in their company getting uh, uh, contracts with the government, but they, uh, are, uh, they are not affected by the, the ban. And, uh, uh, and uh, public employee uh, unions, the, those that have contracts, you know, collective bargaining contracts with uh, government, uh, they're not affected. Uh, they can uh, spend all their money to elect people that then they do uh, uh, collective bargaining with. So, 
uh, I mean, th those are obvious examples where unions are, if they, uh, if they uh, actually believed that people who had a business with the government ought to be prohibited from participating in our elections, uh, the, the, these uh, unions would uh, be immediately, uh, w you know, thought to be within the uh, group of people that ought to be banned. Uh, but, of course, that is not uh, the intent of the Disclose Act. It is written by the immediate past chairman of the Senate Campaign Committee and the current House Campaign Committee, and it is written uh, in order to, uh, 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 to try to ameliorate the losses that they expect to have in, uh, in this election and that uh, it would be in effect long enough to salvage some Democrat uh, office holders. Just very quickly, I agree with Jim's points. Disclose Act is a law that only an incumbent politician who thinks he's going to have vast problems this November would, uh, would embrace. Uh, and I think that says pretty much everything that one needs to know about it. Now, it, it does raise, Bob's question raises uh, a question of how far can the government go in the name of Disclosure, this is an issue that we are uh, trying to litigate before the Supreme Court this term in a case called Speech Now versus FEC that raises the question of whether or not a group that can't otherwise be, be regulated by contribution limits can be required to become a political committee. And Citizens United, the court struck that down for corporations. We're saying strike it down for unincorporated groups because it's too burdensome. So that's, a, that's ultimately a, a question that disclose raises and, and our case raises, I think Disclose goes way beyond what the Supreme Court, uh, and obviously, obviously so, what the Supreme Court allowed in, uh, in Citizens United. Another point uh, that the uh, Disclose Act and other laws like it raises is I think that there are all sorts of content-based uh, discrimination issues. I mean, if, you, if you're going to require a shareholder vote only when they speak out about political issues, why not also require a shareholder vote when, say, a corporation wants to donate to the Cato Institute or when a corporation wants to donate to a museum or a relief effort or any philanthropic enterprise. If we're not going to require shareholder votes for all of those things, I don't see how we can just carve out political speech as the one thing that corporations need to consult with their shareholders about. It's a matter ultimately between the corporation and their shareholders. It is not the federal government's concern. Back there. Uh, Larry Ripstein, I'm up this afternoon. Um, this is for Mr. Bopp and also Mr. Simpson, but I guess mostly to start out with Mr. Bopp. What do you think the uh, role of corporate personhood is in the Citizens United case? In other words, is this really more properly characterized as a case of individual uh, speech rights speaking through the corporation, in which case we might be talking about associational rights, or does the corporate person play a significant role in these rights? And this could relate, it seems to me, to the speech now case where you're talking about an unincorporated association. Yes, uh, corporate personhood plays utterly no role in Citizens United. The First Amendment uh, it doesn't confer rights on individuals or citizens or entities. Uh, it confer, it uh, protects speech. Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. It doesn't say Congress shall make no law abridging the right of individuals to speak. In other words, it is not, it protects speech regardless of the speaker. So it has nothing to do with it at all. I may add to that the, um, and put it in corporate law terms, 
you could read Citizens United as one of those interesting cases where the uh, court pierced the corporate veil to get to the people who actually stand behind the corporation whose interests presumably are being represented by the corporation and therefore um, uh, get to the heart of the matter. So I think this is a kind of a response to those who are kind of demonizing the corporation in response to Citizens United. Yeah, it all, yeah, it they, comes, they, they, they've rewritten the First Amendment. Uh, they they, uh, they say, uh, oh, look how shocking. The First Amendment gives a right to speak to natural persons, and this is not a natural person. Well, it doesn't say that. I mean, they have to rewrite the amendment to, uh, to make that argument. And, of course, since they've never read it in the first place, they don't have any problem rewriting it. And, uh, and since many of them think they're writing a constitution, not interpreting one, it really doesn't matter what it says. Yeah, and the... Uh, the uh, reaction that we've had to Citizens United takes us back to some real um, early literature, uh, Nader, Green, and Seligman taming the giant corporation, um, Burley and Means back in the 30s, um, who expressed their animus toward the corporate form uh, in numerous ways, and uh, it just continues in a new iteration today in the reaction to Citizens United. Well, let me make one other point about this, uh, and that is, uh, uh, but think how pernicious this argument is, that only uh, natural natural persons, ha- they say it different ways, individuals, etc., would have a First Amendment right of uh, to speak under the First Amendment. Uh, it, uh, what kind of world would we live in? Well, we would live in a world in which the rich people have a right to speak and they have the resources in order to speak, and people of average means who have to, who would have the right to speak, but not the means, who have to uh, pool their resources in a corporation or a labor union in order to speak, would have no right to speak. So uh, what I find is it's incredible how often the uh, reformers' arguments and proposals uh, track uh, the benefits of being rich. In other words, nearly every one of their laws enhance the uh, effect, the, the benefit of being rich, because they never limit rich people. They always limit groups, unions, parties, uh, and thereby people of average means. Uh, of course, th- that's the Pew Foundation that has put together the 10-year program to invent, create, and fund the campaign finance lobby over the last 10 years, and where they and the Joyce Foundation, uh, Open Society, that's just Soros, and, and, and others of their allies have spent over $150 million uh, propping up uh, these organizations to create the illusion that people uh, were clamoring for campaign finance reform. And these are the richest corporations and individuals in our country, and every, uh, nearly every one of their proposals uh, enhances uh, their voice uh, to the detriment of people of average means. Campaign finance laws restrict the most effective ways to speak out. I don't think that's a mistake because politicians don't like to have to compete with effective voices. Well, before we close, seeing no further questions from the audience, I'm going to ask a question um, uh, of Jim again to keep you on the uh, uh, you know, earning your your keep. Um, 
you write about this in your article. It's very interesting. The the differences, and, and uh, Jim has been modest. I didn't mention in his introduction, nor did he uh, mention in his remarks, but he took the Citizens United case all the way to the Supreme Court, at which point uh, Ted Olson became the, the counsel at the, uh, at the merit stage. He writes in his article about the differences in strategy um, uh, with, that, with that change. Uh, Jim, just real quick, what, what were those differences and what are the ramifications for the, the law because of that, uh, that difference? Huh. Well, uh, uh, well, let's start with this. The uh, uh, law is art, and if you change artists, uh, you will you will get a different painting. And uh, so, uh, you know, I, I, uh, th- that of course is what happened in Citizens United. Uh, part of the of the differences uh, uh, were uh, by design. Uh, part of the differences were simply uh, fortuitous. Um, the uh, I've already mentioned what I th- think I think uh, were the two reasons why the court uh, decided to re-examine the fundamental uh, premises of campaign finance. Uh, that is, fundamental cases. The the Austin case uh, was because of two things. One was the uh, unworkability of the appeal to vote test in Wisconsin right to life that the FEC had 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 accomplished. They, they, they had turned it into an unworkable uh, uh, standard. And, the, and, of course, that was, th- that was what we were prepared to argue, and, of course, that is also what uh, was argued uh, by Ted Olson. The, they, uh, the other, which was a fortuitous event, uh, was the question by Alito to the solicitor, deputy solicitor general, about the, uh, uh, whether or not the FEC had the power felt that they had the power to ban books, Uh, he candidly and honestly uh, told the deep, dark secret that the FEC had maintained for decades that, yes, they have that authority. And uh, I think the combination of those two factors led to the reconsideration. Uh, uh, He he argued uh, for several more narrow rulings than we were prepared to argue. And uh, one, two, that we that we w- would not have argued, and, and I think were wrong. Uh, one was that, uh, that we should look at this as uh, just as uh, uh, what are the rights of somebody in video on demand, in other words, because that was going to be the, the first, even though not only, distribution of Hillary the movie was going to be by a, an offer that they received uh, for video on demand. And so here we have uh, somebody who has to go to the video on demand, has to pay a fee in order to see the movie. Do they have enhanced rights? And, and they uh, argued, uh, uh, Sister United in, in the merit stage argued that for that narrow ruling. Now, I, you know, the Supreme Court rejected that. Uh, I and I, I think I would have never argued that. I, I think it would have been uh, if the deci- court had decided on that basis, it would have been completely meaningless. Uh, for it would, it would have rendered, you know, instead of an important decision, this would have been a nothing decision. Uh, the second was to expand the MCFL exemption. The Supreme Court had recognized uh, in Mass Citizens for Life in 1986 that there were some not-for-profits that even though corporations generally can be banned from express advocacy communication, there are some not-for-profits that could not be banned. Now, Citizens United did not fit under that narrow exception. 
So the other thing they argued was, well, we ought to tweak that exception to kind of make it a little bit bigger, and, and so that Citizens United falls, falls within that exception. Well, again, I, I think that that was a, would, have, would have been a pointless ruling and, and, uh, and would have you know, not, not really have uh, uh, adv advanced uh, or, per or permitted very many uh, more uh, First Amendment participation in our elections uh, because it had been so narrow and applied to so few corporations. And they would still be, be subject, as all MCFLs are, to an investigation by the FEC over whether or not you meet these factors. So people are afraid to, to take a, advantage of this exception, even if they, if they would. Fortunately, the Supreme Court rejected both of those. And, uh, but I do think that having uh, argued for them uh, and then ha forcing the Supreme Court to reject them, they opened up the Supreme Court to the criticism they have received for not doing the narrow rulings. You know, the, I mean, here we have Citizens United arguing for these narrow rulings that are taking care of, of their problem, and uh, they rejected those. Uh, I think they set the Supreme Court up for uh, a lot of unwarranted criticism. Uh, by arguing for these narrow rulings that really were nothing, would, would have accomplished nothing uh, practical for, uh, or doctrinally for, for anyone. So those are two examples. Now, the other thing that they did, which we were not going to do, was that they had a couple of lines in their uh, merits brief that called for the overruling of McConnell and Austin. Now, uh, uh, we were not going to do that. We have always felt that whenever a... a uh, uh, a, a case is being asked to, to be applied, that, that the validity of that precedent is before the court. They, they don't have to be asked, you know. They're, they're not, you know, some wallflower sitting at the dance waiting to be asked to dance, you know. They, they are perfectly capable of, uh, of saying, well, you want us to apply a precedent? Uh, well, if, if, you know, its validity is at stake. Uh, we're not going to apply some precedent we believe is invalid, improper, unconstitutional. Uh, so we were not going to ask for that. Uh, 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 it was kind of, in my view, a throwaway line because it was not, uh, there was no further argumentation. It wasn't, and know, for further differences, we're going to have to uh, talk to him <laughs> over lunch. Wait, wait, let me give one more part. One more part to that. Now, if it, if it is true, which I don't believe it to be true, if it is true that that helped the court to uh, reconsider Austin and McConnell, then, well, then good for them for having for said that. Okay, uh, we're going to have lunch in the Winter Garden. We'll be back here sharp at 1 o'clock where Bob Levy will conduct a panel on the scope of federal power featuring Alan Gura, Harvey Silverglade, and Ilya Soman. Thank you very much.